Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show. I'm your host, Rupa Subramania. Today, we have an amazing show for you. We're going to be speaking to a remarkable and courageous person whose life story navigates the intricate uh, intersection of faith, culture, and human rights advocacy. I'm thrilled to have Yasmin Mohammed on the show. She is a Canadian with Palestinian and Egyptian roots. She's a dedicated human rights campaigner. She stands as a fierce advocate for the rights of women and oppressed minorities in Muslim majority countries, and more generally is seen as a stern critic of religious fundamentalism all over the world. She's also author of an important book, which I urge you all to read. It's called Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. And she's also president of the nonprofit organization Free Hearts, Free Minds. I, I do think that her book Unveiled is especially relevant in the context of the current ongoing crisis between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and in her book, she offers a very important perspective of her own life. Uh, she was born in the West, but raised in a religious fundamentalist Islamic home. And her experiences uh, paint a vivid picture of straddling these two worlds and how she found herself one day eventually becoming an advocate for the rights of women and oppressed minorities, uh, people oppressed by fundamentalist Islam. She was raised as a Muslim, but Yasmin no longer identifies herself as being a Muslim. She has left Islam. She considers herself to be an ex-Muslim. Uh, and in fact, her name, Yasmin Muhammad itself, is a pseudonym uh, to protect her identity, given all of the threats she's received over the years uh, for being um, a, a critic of, uh, of Islam. Yasmin Mohammed has also been a very important voice, in my opinion, uh, in the highly polarized debate over the continuing war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, she's been uh, writing some incredibly moving pieces recently about the crisis and her own personal connection to Gaza. So please welcome Yasmin to the show. I just wanted to, again, reiterate just, just uh, you know, how big a fan I am of yours. And uh, again, you know, I want to say that, you know, I was so excited to discover your you're Canadian and then and then you're like sharing my stuff and I'm like wow you know I'm in seventh heaven and then so this is a real real honor uh, for me to um, be speaking to you and um, and so you know welcome to my show and um, and um, you know and I'm looking forward to our conversation um, I want to start Yasmin by asking you uh, about your you know your journey you you were raised in a super uh, strict Islamic household you eventually Announced Islam. Uh, could you share us? Uh, I know you've 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 talked about this many times, but for the purpose of this show, could you share with us your journey? Uh, what was involved in breaking free from the constraints of uh, an intensely religious environment uh, in the context of the religious household you were growing up in? Um. So. To be honest, I, when I was growing up, I didn't think that it was intensely religious. I didn't feel like, you know, we were extremists or super, you know, fundamentalists by any means. It was the same as everybody in my community, everybody that I knew at the mosque, everybody that I went to Islamic school with. Um, and now that I'm an ex-Muslim, it's so similar to the stories that I'm hearing from people 
you know, I've got a, a podcast as well called Forgotten Feminists, where I speak to women who mostly the podcast is women who have renounced Islam. And we finish each other's sentences. <laughs> like it, it's it was really not as extremist as um as as you know, as it's now popular to say, you know, the, the truth is the mainstream Muslims were more like me and the, the rare ones are the open-minded, um, you know, freedom loving Muslims who renounce Hamas, who renounce, you know, the anti-Semitism and the homophobia and the violence and all these other aspects of the religion. They are the ones that are the rare gems. Um, so yeah, the way I grew up, I think was, was pretty typical. Um, even though I was in Vancouver, Canada, it was not, not typical to my peers in Canada, but it was pretty typical to a, you know, Muslim upbringing. Um, when my mom was divorced from my dad she was just her and three kids in Canada on her own and so she went to the mosque looking for support looking for comfort looking for friendship and that's where she found a man who was already married already had three children but he took my mom on as his second wife. So technically that's illegal in Canada, but it happens all the time. Um, the first wife was his legal wife and my mom was his Islamic wife. And his first wife and set of kids lived upstairs and we lived downstairs. And, you know, my sister and I were put in hijab. We went to Islamic schools. Um, everything became haram when when he entered our life it was like i could no longer play with my non-muslim friends i could no longer celebrate birthdays i could no longer go swimming ride my bike listen to music everything was forbidden uh so you know my mom started to become him and my mom together started to become a lot more islamist so a lot of political um, as opposed to the just the religion, the faith, the belief system, there's also part of the religion is this idea of a caliphate and that Islam needs to dominate the planet, that everybody needs to be Muslims. So that's more of a political ideology that's referred to as Islamist. And that started, well, the most popular is the Muslim Brotherhood. So after the Turkish Ottoman fell, the Muslims got together and they're like, okay, what do we do now? How are we going to spread Islam? Um, we can't do it like the sword and raping and pillaging the way we did the first time. So let's try and come up with another strategy. Um, and they came up with the strategy that they've been using for the past hundred or so years, which is, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach. One of them being immigration Another one being through the wombs of the Muslim mothers. So basically through um, marry multiple women and get each one pregnant multiple times. And then you have a, a lot of Muslims in that area. And then you can have political power. And the third one is using secular laws against itself, which is one that we see happening quite often in Canada. 
So my mom and the man that she married kind of got swept up in this Islamist boom, which was really indicative of what was happening all across the, the Middle East and North Africa and the Muslim world, starting with, you know, the Islamic regime in Iran was the big boom. And then it just spread. And so, and it spread everywhere. So the, the mosque, used to, we used to have this little mosque that was run by an imam from India. And he was very like, love thy neighbor kind of imam. And then when the Saudi money came in, suddenly he was replaced with an imam from Egypt and his wife was wearing niqab, like head to toe in black. We'd never seen that before. You know, the kids are running around going, there's a penguin, there's a ninja, <laughs> you know, <laughs> at the Islamic school. We're like, what the heck is this? But we just, everybody got swept up in it. Suddenly you saw everybody was wearing niqab. It was the more popular than hijab even. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that, that was the whole trajectory up until 9-11, basically for me, that's when, that was the big boom for me. When 9-11 happened, I was, I had already, you know, I'm skipping over, there's so much Rupa, but basically. Oh, no, of course, of course, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I was just gonna ask you uh, in terms of time frame, when when was this, when, you know, your parents, uh, your mother and your uh, stepdad, uh, you know, you saw them getting increasingly radicalized you were in an Islamic school. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm wondering, was this before 9/11? Oh yes, that was in the 80s and 90s. Okay, yeah. so then I'm, I'm assuming that 9/11 had the had the effect of making people who are already radicalized, if, if it's even possible, to get them more radicalized. Oh yeah, super empowered, super excited, super happy, super feeling very powerful, very similar to how they're feeling right now. Um, yeah, it was that, that was part of the reason, part of the difficulty that, that I had with calling myself a Muslim at that time was because if you can, you know, even as a Canadian, when 9-11 happened, we were all, we all felt affected. Like we were all impacted through this, you know, ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And to see my family, friends, community, you know, everybody around me celebrating, joyful, excited over the deaths of all of these innocent people. Uh, yeah, you know, it was just too much. It was it was emotionally really, really difficult for me to um reconcile how I can be a part of a community that can be so jubilant over the deaths of yeah. innocent people. At what point did you decide to break free? So when 9-11 happened, I was in a university at that point. I had broken free. So my parent, my mom had forced me into a marriage and the man she married, I don't like to refer to him as anything else. Yeah. Um, the they had forced me into a marriage with a man who my mom chose because she said he's strong enough to control you so they chose a terrorist he was an al-qaeda terrorist and he had been in afghanistan with bin laden for you know over a decade before coming to canada and once i married him of course 
you know, head to toe in black. My life was completely shut down, separated from everybody. It's as horrible as you could possibly imagine when I say I was married to a terrorist. Um, but I had a daughter with him. And when I had my daughter, I knew that I didn't want her to live the same life that I had lived. And I knew I had to get out. And um, so I was able to get away from him, was able to get away from my mom. Very difficult, convoluted, complicated process. But, you know, I'll just skip past it all. Eventually, I, I was able to get away from them all and start going to university, which I never imagined I would ever be able to do. And in university, I was taking a history of religions course. And that was the first time in my life that I was able to critically examine Islam. I was actually able to ask questions, which was completely forbidden before that. Questions were like, if you're asking questions, that means the devil is whispering these things in your ear, you know? So I'm taking this course where I'm allowed to critically examine the religion for the first time. And also 9-11 happened at the same time. So really, I was just like from both intellectually and emotionally, I was just bombarded. And by the end of that year, I knew I didn't want to be a Muslim anymore. Um, but I didn't have the, the courage to come out publicly. <laughs> and by that, I mean, like, I still called myself a Muslim. I just said, well, I'm not really practicing or I'm not very religious and, and things like that. And it took a while before I started, you know, taking off my hijab and being publicly looking outwardly as how I felt inside. Um, it's a, it's a slow, difficult process for many reasons. And one of them being you can be executed for the crime of renouncing Islam. So, so yeah, it was, and also my daughter, you know, her dad is a terrorist and he, with a very big organization and I didn't know where his friends were and if they would find us, if he sent them after us. And so I stayed quiet for a very long time. So how old were you or in what year was this when you were in university and you took this uh, course uh, at university and you you had this moment of realization just how um, incredibly... I, I must have been, yeah, yeah, I was 20, I was in my 20s, I was in my, in my mid-20s. Um, so it was kind of like a, a process, you know, yeah. I would say probably by the time... Um, yeah, probably not before I was 30, maybe 29, 30 was when I was finally able to say, I'm not a Muslim anymore. Well, that's, so I wanted to ask you about that. A lot of Muslims will, you know, that I've debated with, and I'll just briefly tell you, I partly grew up in Dubai at a time when it was not as liberal, liberal, I even put that in quotes because I don't think they're truly liberal. Um, you know, at a time when it was, uh, again, you can't question Islam there, you know, and it's very similar to your experience in the sense that asking questions would be like, the devil is making you do this. And when I came to Canada, I, I experienced this incredible freedom where I could express my thought, I could criticize anything. And I really um, grew, in, you know, intellectually as a person when I when I came to Canada. 
a lot of Muslims that I uh, that I debate with, uh, devout Muslims, will say, no, that is not representative of mainstream uh, Islamic view, you know, what people are doing. Um, that's not Islam, you know, uh, Islam is, you know, religion of peace. It's a peaceful religion. We don't uh, intend or we don't mean any harm to anybody. Uh, and so this is all like mis misinformation or a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of what Islam really stands for. And so we are devout Muslims, um, you know, and they haven't left the faith. Um, you decided that you just didn't want to be part of Islam anymore because you don't think because that because for you islam does represent those things yeah because it's not a it, it, it uh, you know i wish that i could be living in a la la land you know and say this has nothing to do with islam and that's not real islam but the truth is my mother was a the head of the islamic studies department at the islamic school she's an al-azhar scholar she had a master's degree in islamic studies from al-azhar and we had to learn the religion very, very well in order, you know, to not embarrass her, to not bring shame upon her in the Islamic school. So all of us had to be very versed and knowledgeable in the religion. So for every person that tells you that's not part of Islam, I can point exactly to the hadith or to the ayah in the Quran that specifically talks about exactly what is happening. So, you know, 80% of Muslims don't even speak Arabic. They 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 can read it as if you're reading, uh, you know, like um, any other language that you just can't understand. You can phonetically read it. They can phonetically read the Quran, but they don't understand what it is saying. Um, and on top of that, most Muslims don't even bother reading the Quran. One book, they couldn't even be bothered to read it let alone all of the ahadith so they just take whatever their imam tells them and if it's a nice imam like the one that we had from india before the egyptian one came in then sure you can go your whole life thinking that this is a religion of peace and this is everything's lovely and there's no problems um but you know if you go into the actual books yourself if you do your own research and your own reading you'll find that the imam has been protecting you from all of that the imam has chosen to pick and choose the good verses and to share those with you and you know good on him for doing that that's great there's a lot of imams out there that do do that but we can't pretend that that has nothing to do with the religion and if you just look at the look at the you know like let's say for example when they say oh homophobia has nothing to do with islam killing the lgbt has nothing to do with islam okay well then can you explain to me why 15 muslim majority countries that are their religions were created or sorry their their laws were created by sharia scholars phds hmm. in islamic studies and in islamic law and those countries have decided to execute gay people <laughs> so you know what I mean like so if you're just some dude that is in Toronto and you think that you want to be a Muslim and gay at the same time that's cool you're that's fine you have every right to do that but you can't pretend that your religion does not call for your execution it absolutely does um but you can you can choose to renounce that or ignore that or pretend it doesn't exist and then go on living your life but you know it, it it is a it is an outright lie 
to say that the sources for all of the violence that we're seeing, the anti-Semitism that we're seeing, the anti-woman, um, you know, bigotry that we're seeing, the 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 all of this supremacist narcissism that we're seeing, all of that, all of it, all of it, all of it has a straight route back into the doctrine. And what's important to note here is the doctrine in Islam is different from other religions in that it is considered the literal word of Allah. There's no metaphors, there's no interpreting, there's no, you know, it's just a story, no. They are specific edicts. Do this, don't do that. Um, and so when it goes back to the Quran and when you see it written there, and if it says, you know, whatever it is that it says, then that's what it is. It's the word of Allah. If it says beat your wife, it means beat your wife. Mm. Amazing. And uh, we've come to a point here in Canada that uh, even questioning the doctrine of Islam uh, is seen as Islamophobic. Uh, anything that criticizes Islamic practices is seen as Islamophobic and you're censured. You could be censured as a result of that. Um, so basically, you're saying that there's no such thing as a secular Muslim. That concept cannot exist. Oh, no, no, no. I, I definitely believe that there are secular Muslims out there. There's no such thing as a secular Islam. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when, if there, if there's a secular Muslim out there that, you know, and there are lots of them, they are yeah. choosing to ignore, they're cherry picking their religion. And that's, you know, I have no problem with that. I think that's great. I would rather have be neighbors with a Muslim who is not following their religion literally versus mm -hmm. a Muslim who has chosen to follow it literally. Mm -hmm. um, but even those secular Muslims, um, they either they don't know or they are lying when they say that this that Islam itself is very anti-secular, incredibly anti-freedom of religion. Yeah. They'll execute you. That's the that's the freedom you get. Yeah. Um, do do secular Muslims, uh, even if they're selectively or maybe they're um, the selective amnesia when it comes to what the Quran, the Hadiths actually say, you think in a in a sense, do they? present uh you know a path towards reforming uh islam because islam hasn't to my knowledge has not gone the kind of reformation that we've seen in christianity for example or even my religion hinduism which has gone through uh, various waves of uh, reform uh, but islam hasn't um when a secular muslim goes up up against someone who is like a mullah who really truly believes in what uh, or an imam who truly believes in what the Quran is saying, literally taking it at face value. Um, do, you, do you see that as a way that the religion could be reformed? Because it's kind of fostering some kind of a debate, if you will. Yeah. Um, the truth is secular Muslims, are their lives are in just as much danger as mine is, or any other per person who has outwardly and outrightly renounce the religion. They are hated in the Muslim community. They are considered not Muslims, you know? Um, so, you know, let's take some examples. Like for example, in Pakistan, there's an Ahmadi community of Muslims that are just different. <laughs> they have different beliefs, but they still wanna consider themselves Muslims. Or Shia in Afghanistan. 
What happens to the Shia in Afghanistan? They're killed. What happens to the Ahmadi in Pakistan? They're killed. These are other Muslims. But because they believe in a, in a slightly different flavor of Islam, they're killed. They're persecuted or executed. So when you talk about secular Muslims or even people like me who are ex-Muslims, we're all, they see us as all the same. Mm -hmm. Unless you are following exactly the way that they want you to follow it, then you are, you know, at risk of being murdered. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about the hijab, uh, Yasmin. I have uh, been openly critical of the hijab, especially when it comes to kids wearing them. I think if you're an adult, my my own view is when it comes to a range of different things, you're free to do what you want uh, as long as you're not breaking the law. Um, but uh, for kids, you know, I, I've i seen with my own eyes in places like in India, uh, I've seen six, seven-year-old girls being forced to wear the hijab. And I've asked the parents, why are you doing this? And they've said, well, we need to protect her modesty. And I said, why? She's only six years old. Uh, why are you basically sexualizing this poor child at that very young age? And uh, and the reaction I get when I say this kind of thing here in Canada is that I'm accused of being an Islamophobe. Uh, and people are not able to understand that it is inherently problematic to impose the hijab on a child. Um, what what does the Quran say? What do you, what is your own view on the hijab? Uh, women in Iran are dying, basically exactly. dying in the streets of Iran to get the hijab off their heads. And here we're seeing it as a, a symbol of women's empowerment. How do you explain yes, that? Absolutely. So it's women in Iran are obviously superhuman, amazing, standing in front of the IRGC, burning their hijabs. They're at a completely different level of bravery. But there are feminists all across the Muslim majority world doing the same thing, maybe not as outwardly and as, you know, courageously, but they're, they're, they're doing it. Feminists exist everywhere that are pushing against this hijab and that are pushing for a women's a woman's freedom to choose to take it off because they like to tell you that it's a choice, but your only choice is to put it on, mm. but you don't get to choose to take it off. Once you choose to take it off, whether you're in Algeria or in Egypt or in Iraq or in Pakistan, there you will either be, you know, the society will look down on you as like a filthy, dirty whore uh, on one end of the scale. And at the other end of the scale, you could be honor killed by, by your family because they're so, um, you know, horrified that you would dishonor the family by showing, you know, hair. hair. So... <laughs> You know, and then and then you talk about the the West, which is this is the embarrassing part because in the Muslim world we have like if you look at my hashtag free from hijab or the no hijab day hashtag, it's going to be full of women in Saudi Arabia. They're taking their niqabs off and stepping on them. They're burning their hijabs all over the world. Women are ripping them off all all over the world. But in the West. That's where they believe that the hijab is an empowering symbol. Nobody believes that in the Muslim world. Everybody understand, all the feminist women all over Middle East and North Africa understand that this is an anti-woman tool of misogyny. It perpetuates rape culture. It encourages victim blaming. It's, it's a gender segregating piece of clothing. 
and we risk our lives to remove it. You know, people are thrown in prison over it. I don't know how you can pretend that anything with that long list of, of crimes around it can be empowering. But mm. in the West, they have somehow just slurped up the Islamist propaganda. This word Islamophobia was created in Iran. It was created by the Islamic Republic of Iran to delude these useful idiots in the West into That's making them think. Yeah. I mean, if the truth needs to be said, Rupa, at the yeah. end of the day, like yeah. they they to to get them to bleat like sheep, Islamophobia, 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 whenever they see anybody criticizing this religion. And it absolutely needs to be criticized. And it is criticized. You're talking about you don't like to see children in niqab, either do I. And in Egypt and in Morocco and in so many Muslim majority countries, they don't want to see their children, their little girls in hijab in the schools either. And in fact, in a lot of those countries, they have banned the niqab as well. But when it happens in those countries, we don't hear about it, even though it should be something to be celebrated. But instead, when France, for example, says we don't want children to be wearing hijab in, in public schools, everybody's up in arms. You have all of the Western left, you know, screaming like, no, let the children be oppressed, sexualize <laughs> the children in France. You know, like, what are you what are you celebrating right now? What are you encouraging right now? But the but the reason why they're such useful idiots is because they don't know anything they don't understand the context they don't understand it islam is the second largest religion on the planet it's an absolute shame that people are so ignorant about it but it's that ignorance that allows them to be duped so easily and this is why you'll find them in the streets with their supporting hamas right because they're like oh they're freedom fighters they're revolutionaries they don't understand they don't know anything about what's going. They've never. They couldn't find Palestine. Try to get them to find Gaza on a map. There's no way. They're chanting from the river to the sea. They don't know what river and they don't know what sea. They don't know what they're doing. They're just making it so noisy and making it so difficult for reformed Muslims' voices or progressive thinking Muslims to get their voices out because they're being drowned out. By these morons and the reason why these morons all have microphones is because of islamist funding coming from qatar coming from iran they're yep. paying billions of dollars into ivy league american universities to push their their um propaganda and it's successful and then they go and they make their little tiktok videos and whatever and it just it's like this it's like this cancer it just spreads and before you know it, people are just repeating these little memes of topics that are actually huge and complicated, but they don't even know the first thing about it. All they know is to just repeat whatever little meme they saw on their seven second clip. Yeah, it's it's all quite dispiriting. I mean, I've personally experienced this with some people who should know better. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, you're just pulling your hair out because, and I've actually 
have lived experience to borrow a phrase from you know uh, a term from the left you know of, of actually having been forced into these things and you know and I rebelled and I'm not a Muslim but I lived in an Islamic country so I know know this quite well but all of this leads to um you know nicely leads to my next question for you Yasmin um the and that is the current conflict uh the Israel um uh, Palestinian conflict that is currently underway right now I've been reading uh, some of what you've written recently with, um, you know, I've been moved by some of what you've written. Uh, your father was from Gaza and um, and you wrote this moving piece in tablet magazine called Gaza, My Lo Lost Home. And you say you're mourning for both uh, Israeli and Palestinian lives. Um, and, and you also say that Hamas has ensured that there will be no more Palestine and no more hope for an independent state. Could you tell us what you mean by this? Well, when I wrote that article, it was like the day after October 7th. So, you know, I was feeling incredibly depressed, demoralized, and terrified for what the future was going to hold. Because there's no doubt that when you send terrorists into a country to murder people in their homes or murder people at a music festival, there's absolutely no doubt that the country is going to retaliate and it's going to be bloody. It's going to be bad. It's going to be ugly. Everybody could see that happening, you know? Um, and so I knew that a lot of Palestinian lives were going to be lost now because of what Hamas had done. I don't care, to be perfectly honest, if Hamas lives are lost let them, I hope they're all lost. Um, but the truth is that they hide amongst innocent Palestinians. They hide in the homes of the Gazan people, in the neighborhoods of innocent people. And as much as we would love to be able to say that we're only going to that Israel would like to, you know, only kill Hamas terrorists and not hurt any civilians or not hurt any innocent people. That's simply not possible in war, mm. you know, and it's simply not possible when you're when you're dropping bombs, you know, it's a war is really ugly. And and a lot of people now are, are playing sort of uh you know, this, this game where they can say, you know, it's like a, it's like a, as if it's like a video game where you can go in there and pinpoint specifically who it is that you want to kill. You know, it doesn't work that way. Israel called people literally in their homes, telephoned each family and said, get out because there are Hamas terrorists in your neighborhood and we are going to bomb it. So they did as much as they could to try and save as many civilian lives but, you know, like, let's take a look at what America did after Pearl Harbor, right? They dropped nuclear bombs on, you know, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. How many innocent lives were lost because of the few American lives that were lost as well? You know what I mean? Like this, this, this idea now that people talk about um, proportionality and war and something like that you know, that that's not, you know, when you have people coming into a country and murdering families in their homes, 
you have to expect 100% that that country is going to retaliate. That's just a statement. But let's continue with that thought for a moment, too, and realize that Israel is one of the strongest militaries on the planet, you know, so you're you're playing with a very big fire right now when you start doing stupid things like that, horrific things like that. And not only that, but the Jewish people have a history which is not even that far back in history. The Holocaust was not that long ago. It's still fresh in all of our memories. Um, and they are, you know, 0.2% of the planet are Jewish people. So when you kill... 1400 people in a day plus kidnap over 200 Jewish people are fighting for their lives they're fighting for the survival of the Jewish tribe at this point and so as much as I am sad and and horrified by what is happening in Gaza right now. I don't, I, I put the blame squarely, squarely in Hamas's hands because Israel has reacted in, in a much even more um, calmer way than any other country would have even reacted to this, yeah. to something like that happening to them. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I mean, Israel uh, is often caught between a, a rock and a hard place and held to an impossible standard. It's it's surrounded by countries that would not do not wish its existence. We would would you know these are very hostile countries. Even if they've made peace with Israel, they're still very fundamentally quite hostile. Um, I think it's possible to feel empathy as you as you have uh, written about empathy for the people of Gaza, innocent Gaza, Gazan civilians, the children and the elderly um, who have been caught in this you know been caught who've been caught up in this conflict. They're suffering. The Israeli civilians have suffered. Uh, they're also suffering. They continue to suffer from the barrage of Hamas rockets that continue to hit Tel Aviv and thank God for the Iron Dome. Um, and um, and I think it's it's possible to feel empathy for Gazan civilians without saying that they're all Hamas supporters. And that was going to be mm -hmm. my next question to you, which is something you point out. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, I think it's a very important point that is missing in much of the discourse I feel here in Canada, that, you know, you said that many people wrongly conflate Hamas and all Palestinians, and that uh, some people have just assume now that if you're advocating for the Palestinian cause, and let's remind ourselves that the Palestinian cause has been a cause that pre has predated this current crisis. It's been there. Well, why are we talking about a two-state solution if there is no Palestinian cause, right? So that, that these people are supporters of Hamas. I'm sure there are many supporters of Hamas at these protests. And uh, But how do you think that this conflation has come about in the that's something that I'm trying to figure out in the context of this current crisis. Uh, two years ago, I'd see these marches on my street in Ottawa uh, from the river to the sea. Nobody nobody paid any attention to it. Um, no one called them Hamas supporters, although I'm sure they were, but now they're seen as Hamas supporters. What do you think is going on? 
Well, I mean, these rallies started immediately after October 7th, like October 8th, they were in the streets mm. talking about revolution, talking about freedom fighters, talking about like our glory to our martyrs. Like there was no question. So the, the, any marches that would have happened prior to this could have potentially been people who truly were interested in, you know, Palestine, in the Palestinian cause. But after October 7th, the those people have been, you know, it almost, I don't want to say hijacked, but they have been, you know, there has been an interjection of many people who also support Hamas, like celebrate Hamas. Um, and so that's the difference. Now, we talked before about how my dad was from Gaza. And one of the things that my dad spent a lot of time in his activism, speaking up against Hamas, being he was disgusted and angry that when people think of the Palestinian cause, they think of Hamas. He's yeah. like, you know how horrifying that is? You know how embarrassing it is that people equate your homeland to terrorists? You know, he was, he was so repulsed at that and but what's he gonna do you know what's any freedom loving peace loving Ghazan gonna do they their voices are not heard in Gaza when they tried to have um they had uh they had protests they had a protest called we want to live and that was a protest against the Hamas quote-unquote government and people were just like they disappeared, they were beaten up in the streets, they were arrested. There are videos online of this one man who was being dragged behind a um, a motorcycle, like his body is just being dragged. There's all sorts of stories. There's a, uh, a very important organization called uh, Whispered from Gaza, where they ask people from Gaza to tell us exactly how they're feeling and what they're thinking. And they share those audio clips and then they add like animation to it. Um, and in those audio clips, you can hear people from Gaza telling you about how when Gaza, when, when the Hamas leadership came in, there was basically a civil war where they murdered the Fatah supporters, who was the, you know, the the more um, the non-terrorist, yeah. Uh, Although leaders. they were terrorists at one point, uh, they were. Yes, <laughs> they. I mean, <laughs> potato, potato. <laughs> it's. I guess it's all. Um, uh, it, yeah, it, I mean, history is complicated. It's a spectrum of terrorists. Exactly. <laughs> history is complicated. There's no question about it. I mean, I do have to remind yeah. people that the, the PLO, Yasser Arafat, was a terrorist at yes. one point. Yes, exactly. And then exactly. He, then no he doubt. was, you know, normalized and he wanted to make peace. And all of that is good. I think eventually, I you know, everybody wants a peaceful solution to what is going on there. And you want long lasting peace and not just something that mm -hmm. things under boil. Is it possible to um, eradicate this ideology? I mean, how, it, it's a bit like what you're telling me about radical Islam or Islam in general, which is why you're an ex-Muslim because you just, you're just like, you've given up on this. You know, it's like, there's no hope there. Uh, and it's in Hamas ideology and this kind of extremist ideology 
can you actually completely eradicate this? Um, so when we talk about the Hamas ideology, like if you look at their manifesto, they're quoting the Hadith. Mm. They're, when they talk about Muslims will kill all the Jews until the rocks and the trees will call out, oh, Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come kill him. That's a Sahih Hadith. So if you're a Sunni Muslim, which is about 90% of Muslims, you believe that to be true. That is a prophecy. That is a, you know, this is part of your religion. And so the only way, you know, the sad truth is it's, it's really like a, it's like a hydra. It's like that mythical hydra, the snake that when you cut off its head, two more are going to grow in its place. Mm -hmm. Hamas is not... Hamas is just one head of this snake. Even if you chop it off, who cares? Nothing happened. Where is the funding for Hamas coming from? It's coming from Iran. All they're going to do is pass it. Okay, fine. We'll pay Hezbollah now. You know what I mean? Like, or What happened when we eradicated Al-Qaeda? ISIS grew. You know, you can't, you can't eradicate an idea. This will continue to morph. It will continue to grow um, as long as people are still believing this doctrine to be the word of Allah and to be something, you know, immutable. When we start to empower and support reform-minded Muslims and their voices and their work, then maybe they can start to become the dominant voices. They can start to become the mainstream Muslims. But right now, the money coming from Iran and the money coming from Qatar and the, you know, all of these Islamist organizations that are paying for Ilhan Omar's campaign and Kamala Harris's campaign and you know, every, uh, um, Rashida Tlaib's campaign, we're up against that. You know, like who, who, who do the progressive Muslims have to support them? You know, they have petrodollars behind them. What do we have? You know, we have a few hashtags. We have our voices every now and then. And this is what you're talking about with the, with the Palestinians, with the Gazans against Hamas. It's the exact same thing. Why don't you hear the voices of all the Gazans that hate Hamas and that don't want anything to do with Hamas? Well, because you, they're not the ones with power. They're not the ones with money. They're not the ones with influence. They're not the ones with guns. And so this is just where, this is what it is. It's it's David versus Goliath right now. And if the progressive-minded Muslims can get the support of the West versus the way the West is supporting the actual fundamentalists, the conservatives, the extremists, if they started putting their time and energy and effort and money behind supporting liberal-minded Muslims, then we might have a chance because it has to come from within. It's not going to come externally. Um, then maybe they'll start to become the, the mainstream voice. Who knows? I won't be alive to see it, but I hope it happens. Final question for you. What is What do you think is the future for Gaza? Um do you think a two-state solution is possible? What will be the future of the Palestinian people by the end of this? I mean, that's a really great question. I personally 
do not think that history will repeat itself. I do not think that this teeny tiny country of Israel that uh, will ever allow itself again to be in this position. So before October 7th, there was like tens of thousands of people from Gaza were coming into Israel every day to work their nine to five and then crossing the border and going back home to Gaza again. That's never going to happen. That's never going to happen again. You know, there's not going to be, I mean, I don't even know if there's going to even be a Gaza, to be perfectly honest. I can't even imagine them allowing the risk of this to happen again. Um, but who knows? I might be, I might be surprised. I don't know, but I, I can't imagine, you know, it, it's, I think it's really too soon to even ask that question. It's like if, if it was immediately after World War II, would we ask Jewish people if they want to be neighbors, you know, with Germany? That's it. Yeah. You know, what kind of, how can you even ask that question right now? So, of course, it's not all Palestinians. Of course, it's not all Gazans, but that's, it's a risk, you yeah. know? And if they are not only looking after protecting their citizens, but like I said, protecting the actual Jewish people that are left on the planet, 0.2%, is that they're already such a tiny minority. Yeah. Um, and they want to have one tiny sliver of the planet where they can live in peace and comfortably then they're going to make sure that the people that are living there are completely protected. So I, I don't know. And this is why in that tablet article that I wrote right after this happened, um, my feeling was, this is it. We're done. There's never going to, this two-state solution that we tried, you know, for over 70 years for it to happen um, was constantly, constantly, constantly being rejected because the other side simply did not want an Israel to exist from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. They do not want to see the whole thing needs to be Palestine. And so it was an all or nothing attitude. And unfortunately, it looks like now it's nothing. Well, on that very grim note, Yasmin, um, I... Um... It's been a real honor to have you uh, speak to us and, um, and you know, and I gained so much knowledge from you and, uh, and I'm sure as of our viewers and our listeners, and I, I really um, wish you all the best in your uh, ongoing fight against radical Islam and all of those other unsavory things in the world. Thank you so much. And all the power to you as well. I'm also a huge fan and, and I love how incredibly fierce you are. You know, there's, I, I, as they say, you know, the divine in me <laughs> sees the divine in you. So, you know, you are, you are my soul sister with that oh. same fierce attitude. And, and I, I you absolutely have no idea. Love it. Yeah. You have no idea how much that means to me. And, uh, and I hope that one day we actually get a chance to meet each other in person and, uh, and, you know, and maybe we could have, yeah, we and I'm sure we we'd have a we'd have a ball. So, um, 
But uh, thank you so much for making the time, Yasmin. I know you're so busy and I really hope to uh, look forward to reading more of your stuff and, uh, and your commentary and uh, you'll always have my support. Thank you so much, lovely. Take care. Take care. Bye.